We are facing a mental health crisis, and it's more important than ever to have access to the support we need. That's why I'm grateful for BetterHelp, the largest online counseling platform in the world. BetterHelp is changing the way people get help with life challenges by providing convenient, discreet, and affordable access to licensed therapists. With BetterHelp, professional counseling is available anytime, anywhere from your smartphone, computer, or tablet. If you're looking for support, sign up today at BetterHelp.com. Use the promo code SOLVINGHEALTHCARE to get 10% off sign-up fees. That's BetterHelp.com, promo code SOLVINGHEALTHCARE. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. All right, folks, we are on the Type 2 Reversal Summit, and we have... One of the, I, I'm going to call him the OG. And from my perspective, he got me on this train from the get-go. Dr. Jason Fung, author, nephrologist, uh, speaker, uh, been on numerous podcasts. I feel like this man needs no introduction. But Jason, welcome back. Thanks, Quadro. It's great to be here. Oh, I'm so glad you were able to, we were able to connect. I... I must say, like, once again, I, as an internist, as a, as a guy that, you know, has relatively recent medical training, the idea of reversing type two diabetes was absolutely foreign to me until I started to pick up your books and, and hear you speak on other platforms. So maybe just in terms of fasting, how does this allow folks to reverse type, their type 2 diabetes? I, in other words, coming off their medication, losing weight. Like, how, does, how, do, how do we achieve that through fasting? Well, maybe we can back up a little bit because fasting is sort of one method, but there's actually multiple ways we can do it. Um, but one of the first, like you, uh, what I was raised on is that type 2 diabetes is a chronic and progressive disease. It's what they taught me in medical school, and basically every doctor in the world sort of believed that. Uh, It was a message that was hammered home, the American Diabetes Association, even as recently as uh, 2018, 2019, had that on the website. It's chronic and progressive. Diabetes Canada had that on the website until 2022, if you can believe it. It was ridiculous. Um, So the idea was that type 2 diabetes is sort of once you have it, you have it forever and you can't do anything about it. So you're just going to manage it with medications, but it can't be reversed. And the thing is that even as we said this and we taught it, and essentially it was one of these things where we, we just, if you just say it enough, people believe it to be true. Because if you actually thought about it, it was completely false and a complete lie. It was a complete fabrication. Um, because, uh, you know, and this is what I called in one of my early lectures, the, one of the greatest, biggest lies of type two diabetes, because think about this for a second. If you have a patient, a fellow who is uh, a friend, even who is like, you know, 300 pounds overweight has type two diabetes, then he loses a lot of weight, comes off his diabetic medications, sugars, normalizes. What do you say to him? Like, you're such a liar. It's, it's irreversible, right? No, you wouldn't say that. You'd say, good job. I'm proud of you, man. <laughs> like, that's what you would say. So clearly, and every one of us has actually had experiences with these people, either patients or friends or family members, 
um, th- there, there are people who had been reversing it every day. And the key was that it had to be with lifestyle and diet. It doesn't happen with medications. If you take medications, things do not get better. So the point was that type 2 diabetes is largely a dietary disease. And we know that, of course, because the prevalence has increased along with the, you know, it's become an epidemic along with uh, obesity. So we know that diet, lifestyle, and weight play this huge role. And therefore, if you are able to lose weight, then your diabetes will get better. So why would every doctor be trained to say that it's irreversible? Like, that's ridiculous. It was a complete lie. And the reason that we lied was that it was mostly a lie to ourselves as physicians. Because as physicians, we spent zero time talking about lifestyle interventions, about weight loss. We left that to Weight Watchers. And we just didn't get involved with the whole area, which is a mistake because, of course, it's important for people's health to lose weight. So therefore, as we abandon that field and says we can't help people lose weight, we just treated type 2 diabetics with medication. And no type 2 diabetic ever got better taking insulin. They only got worse. So because they're getting worse, as physicians, we could face one of two things. We could either say to ourselves, this is a reversible disease. We as doctors are doing a horrible job here. Or we could say, this is a chronic and progressive disease. We as doctors are doing a great job (laughs) managing a bad disease. So you can imagine which course the doctors took. We took the easy route on ourselves. We basically said to ourselves, we're doing a great job. It's a disease that's bad. When it was the doctors that were doing such a lousy, lousy job of treating it because we had given up, basically. And it's not a good feeling because I had many, many type 2 diabetics and I realized that, in fact, I wasn't doing them any favors because I wasn't helping them reverse the disease. If I wasn't helping them reverse the disease, then they would continue to get the complications, including the kidney disease, which I was seeing them for. So first things first, you have to realize that it is a reversible disease. Then you have to understand that the treatments that we were using at the time, mostly insulin, for example, We're not making people better because, again, and this was the crazy part of this disease management, was that we said to ourselves, we taught all the young doctors, we said to ourselves, the goal is to get the blood glucose as low as possible, okay? So you take as much insulin as you need to get the blood glucose as low as possible. That was the prevailing sort of, uh, you know, that was what drove us until the Accord study in 2008, and for many years afterwards, they didn't believe it, so it took them until about 2015, 2016, actually, before they actually abandoned this whole idea of just driving the blood glucose down. Because what they said was that if you drive the blood glucose down, then you're not going to get complications. Turns out that was a completely false. We proved it in the Accord study, the advanced study, all came out in 2008, which proved that if you give high doses of insulin to people with diabetes, then they do not get any better. Their their kidneys don't get better. Their hearts don't get better. And if you think about it for a second, you have to think about what does insulin do? Think about type 2 diabetes as a disease where your body has too much sugar. Okay, So your body has the ability to store some of that sugar. So you eat, you store calories, you store sugar, you store fat. When you don't eat, you use the sugar, you use the fat because that's, that's simply a storage system. Sugar in the liver, glycogen, and fat, body fat is a storage system. If you overflow that storage ability, then all that sugar is just going to spill out into the blood. Just like if you have a refrigerator, but you buy too much food at Costco. Well, you can't fit it in the fridge. It's going to spill over. It's going to be on your kitchen table, in the kitchen sink, and everything's going to rot. Okay, so that's what's happening. Your body has too much sugar. You try and store it away. If you keep storing it away and you don't have any storage capacity, all that glucose just spills out in the blood. So what does insulin do? Well, insulin takes that sugar and just shoves it back into your body by brute force. And what does your body do? Your body says, well, I have all this extra glucose. I'm going to turn it into fat because that's how I store it. So insulin caused people to gain sometimes massive amounts of weight. So my patients would say, look, doctor, you know, my sugars were high. You gave me all this insulin. Then I gained 30 pounds. How is that good? And the answer is that it wasn't good because we never got rid of the glucose. What we were doing as doctors 
was taking that blood sugar, shoving it somewhere where we couldn't see it, and then patting ourselves on the back and saying, look what a good job we did. The blood glucose is so low. Meanwhile, patients were gaining weight. So think about this again for a second. You have a disease of type 2 diabetes where you have too much insulin, right? We know that. Insulin levels in type 2 diabetes are high. So as physicians, we're going to give more insulin. Does that make any sense? <laughs> like if you're hyperthyroid, do you give thyroid supplements? No, you don't because your thyroid level is too high. You know, if you're uh, hyperthermic, if your you know, body temperature is high, do you start putting on heating blankets? Of course not. That's stupid because your body temperature is too high. You should be cooling it down, not heating it up. And we were treating a disease of hyperinsulinemia with more insulin. So what happens when you give insulin? People gain weight. As you gain weight, guess what? Your diabetes gets worse. So this is what we were doing as doctors. We had a disease that we completely misread. It was a disease of too much insulin. And we treated it by giving more insulin. People gained weight. Their diabetes got worse. Then they came back to us. We said, your sugars are higher. You're gaining weight. Let me give you more insulin. So we gave them more insulin. They gained more weight. Their diabetes got worse. They came back to us. We gave them more insulin. It was the exact wrong thing to do. And as they get wor worse, we, we, we placated ourselves by saying, that's the way the disease is. It never was. But the key is that you can't do it with insulin. Your insulin levels are high, so you need to lower them. The question is, how are you going to lower them, right? Well, what raises insulin? Well, eating raises insulin. Carbohydrates raise insulin. So you can use low-carbohydrate diets, and you can use intermittent fasting. So if you use intermittent fasting, for example, you can. what's going to happen is that if you don't eat, what will happen? Well, your body has many, many stores of calories. It has a lot of sugar sitting in the blood, sitting in the body. If you don't eat, your body will burn that sugar. And that's really all that happens. You don't have enough energy, so you use energy from your stores of energy. And what was wrong with that? Absolutely nothing. In fact, one of the latest studies from China was a randomized control trial. They used a, a fasting strategy. They put almost 50% of their patients into remission with that strategy. Five zero? Stra five zero. Like an insane amount. Dr. David Unwin in um, the United Kingdom, he did that for all of his patients in his practice. He said, hey, why don't you try low-carbohydrate diets? Let me give you a few sheets to do it. And of those people that took his advice, 47% went into a drug-free remission. That is, they came off all of their medications and their blood sugars were so low that they could no longer be classified as type 2 diabetic. So the point is that we have many, many studies that show that remission is possible. We had just been lying to ourselves mostly, and unfortunately to the rest of the world, that it was a disease that was chronic progressive. It wasn't. We're treating it wrong. Um, so I, I started saying this, uh, the, you know, my, my, my lecture in, on YouTube, which was called the, the Two Big Lies of Type 2 Diabetes, was in like 2014. I published the Diabetes Code in 2018, basically arguing that this is ridiculous that we say that it's a disease that cannot be reversed because we know it can be reversed, right? So the first step to reversing it is to believe that you can reverse it. If you never believe that you can reverse it, you never will. It doesn't matter what else you do. The second step is to figure out what the best strategies are. And there's just lots of those. Um, but by 2021, the American Diabetes Association was basically forced to recant because it was obvious they were wrong. It was so bloody obvious <laughs> that they couldn't put stupid stuff like that on their website. So they actually published criteria for remission in 2021, which basically admitted that, yes, it's a disease that can be reversed. Diabetes Canada, of course, was super, super slow. They did that in 2023, I think, February or something like that. It's like, can you imagine that the Canadians are so slow that it took them another two years to tell Canadians that, hey, this is a reversible disease. 
right? It's it's ridiculous that this is the best that we could do. Like I'm ashamed of the whole. <laughs> but the especially whole thing. Jason, because like people, as you alluded to, they got to know it's possible for for them to start swinging for it, right? Like if you don't oh, yeah. know it's feasible, especially yeah. if you're, you're the people that you work with that you trust, healthcare providers are not providing you with that knowledge. Yeah. Of, like we're not doing anybody a disservice. I mean, exactly. we're not doing anybody a, a good a service, service here. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's, totally it's wild true. to think about. It's wild to think that Diabetes Canada didn't do that until this year when I had said that in 2014. So for almost 10 years, Diabetes Canada was telling people to not even bother because it wasn't possible. Like, can you imagine what a ridiculous statement that is? I've been talking to them. I've been talking. I've been talking. Nobody would listen to me. Um, and basically, it, it wasn't until the Americans changed that they're like, oh, yeah, well, we, maybe we should change. Like, we're so smart. We're Canadian. Like, come on. Like, it, yeah. it was obvious it was wrong. Like, every patient knew that taking more insulin was the wrong thing. I mean, we see it every day. Like, I mean, I can't count how many times you've seen people with over 100 units of insulin. And they're not, they're not small people and they're they're not losing weight. And it's, and the amount of insulin resistance that's happening. And then you're just giving more insulin. You're just giving more insulin. And that's the lesson. That's the way we've been taught. And And it's it's just when you say it, it's so, it's so, anyways, sorry, go ahead. Well, well, think about it. It's it's actually a very simple premise. And um, the idea is that your body has too much sugar. When you have too much sugar, your body will store it in the liver as glycogen, right? Uh, and if you have too much glycogen, your body will turn that into body fat. But if you, the underlying idea is that if you have too much sugar, then either one, stop putting sugar into your body, which is a low-carbohydrate diet, or two, give your body the time it needs to burn it off. And if you do that, then you'll get better. I mean, think about a car. Say you go to the gas station three times a day. You fill up the gas. Now the gas tank is full, but you keep pumping the gas. The gas spills out, spills out. It's in your backseat. It's making you sick. What are you going to do? Well, I'll tell you what you wouldn't do. Keep going back to that gas station, right? Yet the official advice was not only to go to the gas station three times a day, you should go six times a day. Keep filling up the gas. And what should you fill up with? Uh, you should put more, eat a low-fat diet and put more carbs into your body because carbs are glucose. Chemically, carbohydrates are glucose. So it raises your blood glucose. It's not that difficult. If you have a potato or bread or rice, a carbohydrate, it's composed of amylopectin, uh, amylose. They're chains of glucose. They are molecules <laughs> of glucose strung in either branches or chains. It's glucose. If you eat proteins or fats like an egg, it's not glucose. So if you eat bread, because it's all glucose, your blood glucose goes up. If you eat an egg because there's no glucose, your blood glucose does not go up, even if they're the same number of calories. So here's the stupid thing again. If you have a disease where your blood glucose is too high, wouldn't it be logical to eat those foods that do not raise your blood glucose? Like, okay, that's just so basic. Like a, a high school student, not even a high school, like an elementary school student would tell you that, hey, you have two foods. One raises your blood glucose, one doesn't raise your blood glucose, and your blood glucose is too high. Which one would you eat? Well, the Canadian Diabetes Association said eat the one that raises your blood glucose, 50% carbohydrates. Why would you do that? When you cut those carbohydrates down, in fact, the the diabetes gets better because you're giving proteins and fats, not glucose. You're eating foods that don't raise your blood glucose. It's it's ridiculous. And then Dr. Unwin is putting 47% of his patients into a drug-free remission, right? A drug-free remission. Ridiculous. And the amount of cost savings associated with that drug-free remission is unbelievable. It's astronomical. And the down, downstream uh, effects, like less you know, heart attacks and strokes and cancer and all this is, is, is unbelievable. And again, even the American Diabetes Association, when they released their nutrition statement, said, in fact, low-carbohydrate diets have the most evidence for glycemic control. 
So why aren't we like shouting it from the rooftops? If your blood glucose is very high, then eat the foods that don't raise it. Like that's simple. Less carbohydrates. Like, come on. Like, isn't this isn't this sort of so obvious that everybody should be able to understand? Yet no doctors understand because we were taught completely different. I didn't understand this. I mean, mm. I just kept going with fifty percent carbs and giving them more insulin. Right? 100%. It was it was unbelievable what we did to people. A hundred percent. And you know, we'll we'll get into into low carb specifics, but I, I mean, I, I think we should clarify also, Jason, like when you say intermittent fasting for folks, what does that mean to you? Cause like people will see the time, get confused with, t- with terms, time restricted e- eating. They'll see the five, two, like, what does it mean to you? Intermittent fasting is just any period of time that you don't eat. And I see a lot of articles these days, which are sort of stupid um, they're basically say, oh, fasting is bad for you. Okay. It's like, first of all, fasting is a period of time that you don't eat. That's all it is. And it's part of your normal day. Okay. So there's a period of time that you eat. So say you eat three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, dinner. When you eat, you're going to store calories. Okay. Because you're going to eat. Insulin's going to go up. The insulin's going to tell your body, store some of those calories away. So as you store those calories, that's fine. However, you're putting in more than you can use at that time. So you store some. When you don't eat or when you fast, like when you sleep, then your body needs to use those calories, right? So insulin falls, you're going to use those calories. That's a perfectly natural period of time. And during that period of time, you're going to burn calories. So, okay, feeding, store calories, fasting, burn calories, okay? And during feeding, you're always going to be taking more calories then you can use at that, you know, for that half an hour that you, you are eating, you know, eating or whatever. So if you say that you, you don't support fasting, what it means is that you must be supporting eating constantly. If you eat all the time, when are you going to burn those calories that you're storing away? That is, when are you going to burn that blood glucose that is too high? In fact, it's such a normal part of the day that the English language has a word, breakfast, break your fast. If you're not fasting, you can't break that fast, okay? So therefore, the acknowledgement is that this is a normal part of a healthy day, which is a period of feeding and a period of fasting. So it's not some weird and cruel and unusual punishment. It doesn't mean 40 days and 40 nights. It just means a period of time that you don't eat. How long is that? Well, in the 70s, it was about 12 to 14 hours. So you finished dinner at around 7, you had breakfast around 7 or 8, that's 12, 13, 14 hours, depending, you know, on what it is. So people routinely fasted for 14 hours a day, no problems. If you're a bad boy and you got sent to bed without dinner, you're fasting for 20 hours, right, because you missed your dinner. No problem. Many kids got that. No problems. Nobody died. There's no health consequences that were really bad. There's a reason that your body has body fat. It's not there for looks. It's there for you as a store of calories. So if you don't eat, you're going to use them. So what's wrong with that? If your body has too much fat or too much glucose, which are stores of calories, then you can lengthen that period of fasting so that you can use up some of those stores. And that's all it is. It's a completely natural process. You're supposed to be alternating between feeding and fasting, feeding and fasting. So these, these ideas that, oh, fasting's bad for you. It's like, you don't even, those people, I read these articles, I'm like, these people don't even know what they're talking about, right? Like eating all the time is bad for you. That's what it is. If you're overweight, if you have high blood glucose, eating all the time is really bad for you. If you don't eat, then you're going to use some of that fat or use some of the glucose. That's it. So it can be 12 hours. It can be 16 hours. It can be 20 hours. It can be 24 hours. Most of the time we do shorter fasts, like 16 hours, 24 hours, 24 hours, more frequently as opposed to longer fasts, like three days, five days, seven days. You can do those, but you know it's a little harder to do. It takes a little bit more doing. Um, you have to be a bit more careful because they're longer, so you have to monitor more things. But It's always strange to me that in the past people would routinely fast for like 14 hours every single day without even thinking about it. 
And uh, these days, people are thinking that you shouldn't even go like two hours without putting a muffin in your mouth. It's like, how's that going to help you? <laughs> really? Your blood glucose is through the roof, and you think that you should shove some food in your mouth because, hey, your body's too stupid to figure out where it's going to get its energy from. Like, really? Like, you really think that we survived as a species without the ability to go without food for a while? You really think that our bodies are so stupid, like so incredibly stupid that we have all these stores of calories, body fat, blood sugar, and yet when we don't eat, we're going to cause ourselves irreparable harm. Like, really? Like, how did we become the dominant species of this planet? Yeah, And, and so then when you, you got a patient in front of you, you got a type 2 diabetic in front of you, and you're introducing these concepts. Where do people start? Like, as you said, you could go 12 hours, you could go 24 hours. But what is your approach when, when people are showing interest? Uh, generally, um, so I deal with mostly older people. So if you're starting with younger people, they tend to start sort of more aggressively. But with older people, what I do is, is start sort of gradually and move up, especially if they're on medication. So what I'll do is I'll explain those concepts. Basically, your body just has too much sugar. So let's start with putting less in. So I start by cutting out the carbohydrates. Then I say, okay, make sure you have a period of the day that you're allowing your body to use those calories. So I start with a sort of cutting out snacks, cutting out everything after dinner time, which is about a 14-hour fast, right? I'm just trying to go back to the 70s. And uh, that's and then once that's okay, then I go to 16 hours, and then I try and get them up to 20 or 24 hours. And that's not every day. Sometimes it's uh, two, three times a week. And then a lot of times you'll see massive improvements. I did a... Um, I did a case series in the British Medical Journal, uh, three patients of mine. Uh, it was uh, I treated them incorrectly for years. And then I told them to go to a 24 hours, three times a week. Those three patients, I think the average there on 70 units of insulin, within a month, the three of them were off of all their medications and at a level which they couldn't be classified as diabetic any further. Um, and I had... And it was ridiculous. It was like I just, I just treated them the right way, and they, they, everything got better. I took them off all their insulin, and they just uh, improved to a massive degree. And of course, that's when I felt, oh man, I've been really stupid. <laughs> I so really a month, haven't done like within a month, Jason. Within a month, and these people had had diabetes for like twelve years, fifteen years. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. Now, not everybody gets results like that. But it's just to show you, like, when you treat it correctly, what can happen? Because before that, of course, I was telling them to eat lots of carbs, 50% carbs, and eat six times, eight times a day, right? Multiple small meals. It, it, it's, it's sort of ridiculous, like, because it's like we tell people to eat six times a day, or we tell them that you mustn't skip breakfast. It's like, so what do you really think happens when you skip breakfast? So if you're not hungry at breakfast time, then your body, which has been using your stored calories, right, your blood glucose, because you've been sleeping, you've been fasting, you give it an extra three hours where it's continuing to burn blood glucose. Why is that so bad? Like, please tell me, why is that such a horrible, horrible thing? And you realize that the, a lot of the people that say, oh, you must eat breakfast, um, a lot of those studies were in fact um, uh, published by the breakfast food companies, right? In fact, it was so bad that when they were looking to, um, you know, for an example of bad science where, you know, the, the funder of the study makes a, just a huge difference, the one place they went to was breakfast studies because it was just such a horrible area because everything had gotten corrupted by the breakfast food companies, which sponsored scientists to say that breakfast was so important that you must eat. I mean, think about it. If you're overweight, if your blood sugar is high, you get up, your blood glucose is through the roof, so you should eat. What? <laughs> you're overweight, so you should eat. Okay. How, how is that going to help exactly? You know, you should eat all the time to lose weight. How does that work? Like, please tell me. It's like saying that you should dry off by jumping in the pool. 
Because as far as I know, you can't dry off by jumping in the pool. And as far as I know, with all the physiology that I know, you cannot lose weight by eating. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, yet we are telling people to do that. And like the physio, not only physiologically is making sense, but now, I mean, you just mentioned your case series. You talked about the study in China. Like the data is clear that this is a viable option for m- many folks. And the like the only argument I've seen that is maybe, I don't even, I want to say if it has some teeth or not, but from a physiologic perspective, people that were anti-fasting were talking about uh, protein, like the losing lean muscle mass. And do you have any thoughts on, in terms of, of that as a, as a risk? Because, I mean, the argument being that the more lean body mass you have, uh, muscle mass you have, the more uh, you take up glucose, the more you... you oh, absolutely. So rate. muscle mass is very good for you. Um, the problem I have with a lot of these are that they're using it in, you know, a lot of people who use this fasting, they're like at like, you know, healthy people at like 8% body fat who want to go down to six. Like that's like sub marathoner levels, right? So you have all these people online and they're all like, oh, fasting, I lost muscle mass. It's like, yeah, because you're at like 8% body fat. The average I'm seeing is at like 48% body fat. Mm. There's a huge difference. And they say, well, you're going to lose muscle mass if you don't eat protein. It's like one, there is a period of time where you have uh, protein uh, burning. That's the period of gluconeogenesis. And people always say that's, you're going to burn your muscle. It's like, okay, again, when you lose fat, that's one thing, but you also have protein that needs to go because that's the connective tissue. That's the skin. That's all the stuff that supports the fat. So that's why if you purely lose fat, you get all this flabby skin that goes and you have to cut it. And sometimes it's like 20 pounds of skin that you have to cut off. That all has to go. That all has to go. And it's, so it's not, yes, you do have an air period of protein that you're losing, but it's not a period of muscle loss per se. Second, um, if your body is stores energy, okay, stores calories in two forms, glucose, right, glycogen in the liver and body fat. That's how you store energy. So if you're, suppose you're a 300 pound man, 50% uh, body fat, right? You've stored a lot of calories as energy. And you, if you're saying that the fasting, as soon as you go more than a few hours without eating, you're going to lose muscle. That means you're saying that our, the human body is just so incredibly stupid that it stored all this energy as fat. And the minute you need it, it's going to burn all your muscle. It's like, do you really think that's happened? Think about, you know, all those indigenous people who are living on the land in the, you know, ancient times, you know, on the plains of America and Canada and so on. So they had periods of uh, famine. They had periods of feasting, right? So they're doing fasting, but not, you know, necessarily because they wanted to, just that it was winter. There's no food to eat. So all of these peoples that, you know, Christopher Columbus ran upon, they had all these periods of feeding and fasting. If you're, if you feed, you store fat, you fast, you burn muscle, you should, those people should have been little blobs of fat just rolling around the Great Plains, right? That's not what happened. These were lean, muscular, well-fit people. Like this whole idea of you must eat protein to gain muscle is completely like, it's true if you're like a bodybuilder and you really have a lot of muscle and very little fat, then yes, you should prioritize protein. For everybody else, if I could just gain muscle by eating protein, man, all of us would be like, you know, have these huge muscles. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. There's one way that you gain muscle. You put stress on it. You lift heavy things. When you lift heavy things, your body... Your muscles actually sustain little micro tears. And as they repair, they repair stronger so that they can carry those heavy things. That is the only way that you gain muscle. It doesn't matter what the hell you eat. So if you put somebody, breaks their legs, goes into bed rest, I don't care what you feed him or her, they're losing muscle. Those legs atrophy like you wouldn't believe. You put somebody in space, an astronaut, take away gravity. Guess what? Their muscles atrophy so fast you won't believe it. Like this, a matter of days, right? A week in space and your your muscles are completely wasted. That's why they have to exercise. I don't really care how much protein they eat. 
That's not what builds muscle. You build muscle by stressing it. You build bone by stressing it. So for most people, yeah, I, I understand if you're like one of these, you know, athletic types who's looking to sort of optimize their health and stuff. Yeah, you might want to take a bit more protein. You might not want to do the long fast. If you're on the other end where you have a lot of metabolic illness, you have, you're overweight, like, you know, the average person is like 20, 25% body fat. That's the average. That's not the obese people. That's not the overweight people. They're closer to 40%. So if you're at 40% body fat, yeah, I would worry about that and not the protein so much. So the, the, the whole idea, it's not that they're wrong. It's that they're looking at one end of the spectrum that I'm not looking at. So then they take what I say and say, oh, well, it doesn't work. It's like, yeah, it doesn't work if you're at 8% body fat. It works if you're at 48%. Then this is probably the best thing you could do. So one, there is muscle, there is protein to be lost. You do have to lose some protein. That's actually natural because if you look at the amount of protein in an overweight person, it's about 50% higher than a normal person, like a non-overweight person, because they not only have more fat, they actually have more protein. And that's connective tissue and so on, not necessarily muscle, but yes, some muscle. Because remember, they're walking around with all this extra weight. It's like weight training. They're going to have muscle. If you take away the weights, you know, if you train with weights, 100-pound weights every day, then you train with 80-pound weights, guess what? Your muscles will shrink. So if you're carrying around 300 pounds every day on your legs, you're, you're, you're putting stress on those muscles. Now you're weighing 250 pounds. You took 50 pounds of weight off every single day. Your muscles are going to shrink. Sorry, that's just the way it is. And so I mean, this whole idea is, is like, it's, you know, to me, it's not very relevant to what I do as in terms of type 2 diabetes reversal. Um, you know, that's, but I do see those people who, you know, yeah, they make the case, and and I mean, like I said, we we really got to think about who we're trying to treat here. Like as you mentioned, the the continuum of, of of patients can be significant, but we're we're talking about established type two diabetes or pre diabetics that are looking to reverse their condition. And to be honest with you, there's no reason why we can't be prescribing resistance training, like lift weights. Yeah. You know what I mean, and that Absolutely. that automatically will 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 contribute and, and and put you in a better spot than if you're not weight training on top of, yeah. of fasting. So I I, I I I completely agree with you. The other thing that I I see a lot of people talk about is that fasting has no benefits outside of calorie restriction, which I always think is a very funny argument to take because you know that chronic calorie restriction which is you know eat six times a day cut 500 calories from what you eat we know that doesn't work so the problem is that if you are using fasting um, and you're basically uh, cutting down the period of time that you eat you most people will eat less that's sort of natural so there's been uh, lots of studies where they've taken people and put them on a time restriction for in terms of the eating, and they find that they're eating fewer calories overall um, in the day because there's less, there's less opportunities to eat, right? So say, for example, that you're eating, you say, I'm going to eat two meals. Well, then you decide not to eat that you know, after dinner snack because that's outside your thing. Well, yes, yes you're fasting, but you've also cut the calories. So they, they do go hand in hand. But the thing is that if one causes the other, the fasting, by restricting the period of time that you're going to eat, causes you to eat fewer calories, that doesn't mean that the fasting has no benefits, Mm. right? It's sort of like um, saying that, oh, if you get an education, you can get a good job as a doctor and make lots of money. And then you say, well, education doesn't matter. Uh, The only thing that matters is money, right? It's like, yes, that's true. But it's the education that allowed you to make money. Therefore, you can't say that education has no correlation. Or you say that a drug like semaglutide, right? Semaglutide causes you to eat less because your appetite is decreased. Therefore, you lose weight. So you might say, you might do a study and say, hey, look, semaglutide has no benefits outside of calorie restriction. Therefore, semaglutide is useless. There are lots of people who would disagree with you. 
because they'd be like, well, it was the semaglutide that allowed you to eat fewer calories and still maintain a normal lifestyle. That's what is the important part, not the calorie restriction. You're trying to go that one level deeper, right? You're not saying that you're restricting calories or it's nothing to do with calories. You're saying that you're trying to get into the level of why are people taking more calories? Because if, if you're taking more calories because you're eating too often or too frequently, then cutting down your frequency is going to be an effective treatment, right? If, if you're eating too many calories because you're an emotional eater, well, then you've got to deal with the emotional eating, right? Just to say it's all about calories, it's all about calories is so simplistic. It's, 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 it's sort of like, you know, if you're an alcoholic, hey, don't drink alcohol. Hey, I just solved the world alcoholism, people. Where's my Nobel Prize, right? It's like, no, that's stupid, right? It's what's causing that person to drink alcohol? Are they depressed? Do they need to get mental health? Do they need to get support? Or do they have PTSD? You treat that, you give them counseling, for example, through, say, Alcoholics Anonymous. Then they don't drink alcohol and their alcoholism gets better. It doesn't mean that, hey, you know, counseling doesn't reduce alcoholism independent of alcohol in, alcohol out. So therefore, counseling is useless. It's like, no, if you think that, you're stupid. Same thing with time-restricted eating. If that's what allows you to eat less overall or eat better, then that's a valuable thing. You can't take one, uh, you can't compare the two, right? It's sort of like, you know, there's a study, for example, in the New England Journal, which was, there was problems with it, but they took sort of time-restricted eating versus time-restricted eating, and they matched them for calories, right? So the same number of calories, but time-restricted eating or not, which is sort of like the same study as, you know, for treatment for alcoholism, I'm going to have both groups drink the same amount of alcohol, but one has counseling and one doesn't have counseling. If you show the same amount of alcoholism, you would conclude that counseling is useless, Nobody should do it, right? It's the same idea, right? They don't understand that sort of, um, you know, one causes the other. They're not independent variables, right? When you do, you know, calorie counting and then time-restricted eating, they must be independent variables for you to do sort of A plus B versus B alone sort of thing. That's the structure of it. So if you don't understand that, you're going to design a bad study, which is going to say that fasting and semaglutide has no benefits, right, for weight loss. Semaglutide has no benefits outside of calorie restriction. Yeah, I mean, just personally, I have a tough time with the idea that all calories are deemed equal. Like when we know when physiologically, if you're getting a high insulin response, something that's like more likely to cause increase in fat uh, genesis, like to me, just intuitively you you would not you would want to have some, ingest food that is less likely to trigger insulin like that to oh, me, absolutely that that to me just makes physiological sense yeah this whole idea of calories in calories out is quite quite sort of um wrong i think in that if you take say carbohydrates if you take bread versus an egg the minute you put it in your mouth there is going to be a vastly different hormonal response to those two foods. That's just, that's, we know that, right? Bread is going to spike your sugar, spike your insulin. The egg is not. It's protein and fat. Therefore, it is metabolized in a completely different way. Like glucose doesn't go up. Insulin may go up with the protein, but not with fat, right? Fat is stored directly into the fat cells. But what we what you have to say is that the two hormonal responses, which are completely different from each other, have absolutely no bearing on the human body. It's like, why would you think that? Why would the body have two completely different hormonal responses if it doesn't matter, right? So how can you say that all calories are equal? Because obviously they're not equal. And all we're trying to say is that some foods are more fattening than other foods, Right? cookies are more fattening than broccoli. That's basically what we're saying. Now, how can you argue with that? That's what I don't understand. But there are many, many people, especially in academic medicine, I have to say, who vehemently defend the idea 
that cookies are as fattening as broccoli. Whereas your grandmother, who has a lot of common sense, would say, you're an idiot if you believe that cookies are as fattening, <laughs> are, are equally as fattening as broccoli. Because you don't get fat eating broccoli. That's just the way it is. That's mm. just nature, right? This idea that they're completely equal. If they're the same number of calories, they're as fattening as each other. No, I think it's completely untrue. In fact, most of the human experience would tell you that it's not true. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot of stuff coming out on nutrient-dense foods and how that the implications that has. And I I, I think there's a lot of new exciting stuff in in terms of nutrition uh, personally. And I'm I'm wondering if we could end off by, is there anything since we last spoke or in the last few years that has really made you like adjust what you 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 recommend to your patients or open your eyes to new ideas any 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 novel concepts not really i mean if you look at i mean there was in terms of the fasting again there is this whole idea that there's no benefits outside of calorie restriction which i actually think is not true i think that there is a lot of uh, benefits, uh, and a lot of it has to do with uh, habits. And you know, if you restrict your eating opportunities, you're going to eat less, and you're going to eat better. Because if you're eating dinner and not dinner and snack and snack and snack, you're going to eat better because you're going to eat what you should eat. The snacks are going to be terrible for you because they're not. You know, you're not putting any thought into it. You need to have so many snacks that you're naturally going to eat very highly processed foods. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, there's this sort of, um, movement away, uh, from say low carb to high protein, which I think is, again, high protein has been around a long, long, long time. I mean, that was the original sort of 1990s low carb was high protein. Um, so all chicken breast and lean meat, right. And it did as a diet, it did horribly. Um, you know, it, it just, it, it just became, if you're low carb and low fat and all you're eating is protein, it's basically inedible. Like you can stick with it for a little bit of time, but I'll tell you that I had a lot of patients. First of all, you lose a lot of weight. So if you're eating all chicken breast and, you know, and lean meat all day and, you know, vegetables and salad, you will lose a lot of weight. It it actually does well. Then about six to eight months, you start to plateau. And then at a year, it's like, I can't look at egg whites anymore. That's what they all say. <laughs> like, I can't take it. I've eaten them every day for like, you know, the last six months. I don't enjoy my food. I don't enjoy my life. I don't enjoy going out with people to eat because all I'm eating is chicken breast and egg white and salad. It's awful. Well, my friends are eating, you know, this and that. It's like, okay, it's, 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 it works, but it's just really, really, really hard. Um, and nobody keeps it up. So then every, it just goes away. So this whole switch to high protein is sort of like, we've been there before and I'm not sure that it's, it's, it's what we're supposed to do. I think we should actually go back to sort of a 1960s style diet, which is sort of, cut down the sugars, cut down the refined carbohydrates, and cut down the snacks, right? So remember, it's, it's in the 1960s, 1970s, you're talking three meals a day, no snacks. And that's it. You don't eat in the car, you don't eat at your desk, you don't eat in the hallway, you don't eat while you're walking, you only eat at a table with other people. That's it. That's the only time you eat. So by restricting those periods of time that you eat, you're, you're restricting your eating opportunities and you're going to do better, is is my guess. So uh, there's a lot of stuff about ultra-processed foods. So again, I think those are very good uh, because the ultra-processed food is one of those things that contributes because they, they, all these refined foods tend to spike the insulin, right? I always say that it's really not about carbohydrates per se. It's really all about the hormonal response. Your body doesn't know how many calories you're taking. It doesn't even know how many carbs you're taking. But it knows how high the insulin levels are, how high your counter-regulatory hormones are, and, and how high your leptin is. And with all that, that's what tells you how much body fat you're going to carry. 
And so it's not really dependent on uh, any of that. So I think that there's, you know, in terms of what I tell people, it's still the same, right? The basics are still the same as I uh, put out in the obesity code, which is, you know, cut down the refined foods, cut down the sugar. I don't think anybody really disagrees with that, but also don't eat all the time, right? That's really one of the things that we haven't looked at so much. It's really pure common sense. Give your body the time it needs to use those stores of calories. That's all we're saying. If you have too much, if you have too much fuel in your tank, run your body for a little while without fueling it up because that's going to make you better, right? That's it, it's it's not that difficult. And if you have if you lose weight, your type two diabetes will likely get better. If your blood glucose is high, eat the foods that don't raise your blood glucose. The other exciting thing is the con- uh, the continuous glucose monitors are more widely available. So they're a real help because you can actually see the effect of those foods in real time. So very useful if you're trying to do that. And the government will cover it if you're on insulin. Um, and uh, the other thing that I think is very interesting is a lot of the behavior change literature is coming out. And that's also very important about you know, healthy habits and how to, how to make healthy habits and that kind of thing. I love it, Jason. As always, bringing the gold. If people want to get more from Dr. Jason Fung, where, where do they track you down? Uh, you can check out my uh, Twitter. I'm on at Dr. Jason Fung. That's Dr. Jason Fung. Um, you can also go to thefastingmethod.com. I have a number of blogs there. You can check out my YouTube channel. There's a lot of free videos. There's like a, a hundred plus videos. Uh, there on uh, on YouTube. So that's a great place to get information. And then, of course, you can go to my books, The Obesity Code, The Diabetes Code uh, as well. Amazing, Jason. As always, throwing down knowledge. We appreciate you. <laughs> and this was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks so much, Pajo. This was fun. All right, Quadcast. That was freaking awesome. So awesome. If you enjoyed that, please leave us any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Leave a five-star rating. Follow us on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, at Quadcast. Jump on our newsletter. Jump on our community at quadcast.subsect.com. All things healthcare solutions all on one site. Y'all gonna love it. All right, people. I hope you're feeling a little bit more jumping your step after that episode. Thanks for listening. Talk real soon. Peace.